From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Mike White's team entered this week badly needing to get off the deck in the SEC, and they did just that, getting their first conference win at South Carolina, then returning home and completing a double-digit comeback against Mississippi State. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss men's basketball's big week, the beginning of Phase 1 for football, a historic meet for gymnastics, women's basketball's continued resiliency, and the often surprising impact of celebrity deaths in the PAT. Then, men's basketball's new assistant coach Eric Pastrana joins us to share how a kid from Miami found his calling in coaching and the path he hopes to pave for more Latino representation on the sidelines. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let's get rolling on this week's Gator Roundtable with Gators Scott and Gators Chris. Uh, Guys, let's start by talking some basketball. And Chris, we sat here a, a week ago and we said that you know, in that LSU game, Florida had all these opportunities to get the game, and they just couldn't get over the hump. And then they were in quite a dire situation at 0-3 in the league. They went to South Carolina, difficult place to win. They got a win. Then they came back home, and in a game that was Mississippi State was going very similarly to how the LSU game went. But then they changed the script, Chris. And I think that's the that's the beauty of sports, right? As you can see a story and think you know the ending, but it can always change. In this case, it did. Yeah, and like in all really good scripts, there are subplots. And obviously, there was a huge subplot, a huge difference in this game. They didn't make those plays last week, and they had their best player, Colin Castleton. And here in this game uh, against Mississippi State Wednesday night, they learn a few hours before the game that uh, Colin will not be able to play. They saw him get hurt uh, and leave practice the day before. Um, tests come back, and they just he's 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 not going to be able to go. As it turns out, it's going to be Mike White termed this a, a significant injury. So uh, this is how they're going to have to play a little bit. And you know you have you have to give him credit for answering the bell. I, I'm I'll go as far as say this is as unlikely an outcome of a of a game that the Gators have played under Mike White and I'd like to say a long time let's just go back one year okay to last January if you recall Tennessee came in here number six in the country Scotty Lewis wasn't playing he had COVID Colin Castleton was scratched from the game during Mm warm-ups Tennessee was manhandling teams at this time last year and it was an axe kicking Okay, Florida killed them last year. I mean, right out of the box uh, with Colin Castleton on the sidelines and street clothes cheering his team. This game was different because um, this this wasn't like this uh, uh, punch in the face out of the box. You know, Florida played kind of well. They showed some moxie early on sticking around in the game. And there weren't, there weren't a lot of people in the game at the beginning. It's early start, 630, people trickling in a little yeah. bit. Um, give the Gators credit. I mean, it, it playing really hard, especially on the defensive end, Adam. 
um, without their chief rim protector, Colin Castle, leading scorer, leading rebounder, uh, second in the league in blocked shots. That's a big loss, man. But uh, they stuck around, but fell behind by eight, came back, made it, made it a little bit closer, fell behind by eight again. The second half came back, tied the game, then fell behind by eight again. Uh, as soon as they tied the game, Mississippi State went on a 9-1 run. But that's when things kind of changed. And, and, you know, honestly, sitting there watching the game, you didn't expect it to happen because of what you talked about, the, the segue that you gave me. A bunch of times tonight, Florida would get close, Mississippi State would go down and post up and score. Uh, Mississippi State hits a, hits, a, hits, hits a jump shot after Florida gets within three, makes it a one-possession game. Not this time, man. This time, Florida scored 10 straight points. They outscored uh, Mississippi State 23-8 to eight down the stretch. And a lot like in that South Carolina game where every player that checked in scored, the Gators got contributions from just about everybody who got in the game. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go backwards a little bit. I mean, uh, Toon Gaktek, I don't think we've mentioned him in any, in any way since I've been on any of these podcasts. They needed him. He's a junior college transfer, hadn't played hardly at all. The guy is a beanpole. He's not ready to play. They stuck him in there. He had a really awesome dunk in the first half that kind of got people jumping around a little bit, kept the game kind of close. C.J. Felder gave him some minutes at the five position. Obviously, they went to Jason Jatobo to start. He had 3,005 minutes in the first half and got his fourth foul three minutes into the second half. So he played uh, the last however many minutes it was with four fouls and ended up uh, uh, having eight points, two rebounds, hit a couple big free throws late to kind of stave off a rally. Uh, he played his best basketball in, in a foul discipline situation, Adam, with four fouls and made some really big plays, even drew a big offensive foul on, a, on, a, uh, on Mississippi State side when they were trying to come back in the game. But the, the players of the game, Anthony Derugy, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else you can say about what this guy's done. Uh, he was six of eight from the floor, 22 points. You know, he only had three rebounds, but he had five steals. And he was just so active crawling on the floor, jumping on the floor, diving on the floor. The, the one steal he had, passing lane steal, run out. It was in the middle of that uh, uh, surge that the, that the Gators were making. Um, just big, big plays. And it was eight and nine from the free throw line. This is a team, if you recall, last week, 11-22 from the free throw line. So that's big. And then you got Tyree Appleby. He was a minus 17. I think we talked about this last week in the LSU game mm. and did not start the, game, the next game at South Carolina. And in that game, I think he was seven assists, two turnovers. In this game, he comes out, he's five assists, two turnovers, comes off the bench, but he scores 17 with a huge four-point play mm-hmm. in uh, during that stretch uh, where Florida uh, took control of the game. So um, very admirable a win, as like I said, as unlikely a win because of the comeback nature of it. Uh, to fall back by eight after expending so much energy, and you don't have your guy. He's over there in street clothes cheering you on. But uh, uh, they found a way. Now they're going to have to find a way again, again, and probably a few more agains uh, in dealing with the loss of Colin Castleton. This was a good start to that. Mississippi State's a good team. They have a nice front court. Garrison Brooks played was a 1,200-point scorer at North Carolina. He was started for the for Mississippi State. Uh, Rocket Watts is a transfer from uh, uh, Michigan State. Um, Shaquille Moore, uh, a transfer from NC State. DJ Jeffries, transfer from Memphis. I mean, they – they had a lot of the makeup, of, of kind of like similar Florida kind of makeup, except uh, probably higher profile kind of transfer guys. Not to mention uh, Iverson Molinar, who's you know one of the best guards in the in the league. 
Tulu Smith is a 6'11", 245-pound center. He worked the Gators for 27 and 15 last year in a win at Starkville. He was 11 and 13 from the floor in that game. So that's what they were going up against minus Colin Castleton and still managed to band together and uh, and put together what is you know a big win. It's a second straight SEC win after starting 0-3. You can only play the games in front of you, but they're trying to dig their way out, and they got Vanderbilt at home this week. You know, uh, hold serve on your home court Saturday. And all of a sudden you're three and three and um, feeling a little better about yourself than our last conversation. So holding serve against Vanderbilt at home is one thing, but it's another to then play a game on Monday night on the road and then Wednesday night on the road. We talked about this briefly last week. This is this really, really difficult stretch that was caused by the, the COVID postponement of the Ole Miss game. Now you've got, you know, you're down your best player and you've got three games in five days. It's a, definitely going to be a huge challenge. How do they How do they manage this? Float will play Vanderbilt, come what may, uh, get up Sunday morning, lift weights, get on a plane, and then fly to Ole Miss for a 7 o'clock game uh, the next day, excuse me, on Monday. And then uh, after the game, fly right to Tennessee for a game Wednesday against a, a, a you know opponent that Gators always struggle with Tennessee uh, in Knoxville, their physical team, Rick Barnes, uh, Rick Barnes team, and this particular one with, you know, Kennedy Chandler, one of the best uh, freshmen in the country. It was a very hard task. And John Fulkerson, the guy who's sixth year, he might even be a seventh year senior. I forget, but he'll be there. And again, it'll be, it'll be a difficult game, not just a difficult game, but a difficult stretch. Mm-hmm. You have to play without Colin Castleton. But I, I, I will say this, if, if they can maybe blueprint and bottle what they did collectively in this particular game, maybe they know a little bit of what it's going to take, how it's going to take a little bit from everybody to, uh, to get something out of this. I really liked um, after the game, Anthony DeRuji said he was walking with Tyree to the interview podium. And he looked at him and goes, you know what? I think we're getting our swagger back. And it's that swagger that they had early on in the season that was all rooted on the defensive end of the floor, Adam. When they play to their defensive identity, they're a much, much better team. I think when they play that way, they, they tend to forget when the shots aren't falling on the offensive end because they know they're going to get more chances because of how they play defensively. Now, having said that, they shot the ball pretty damn well against Mississippi State. And somebody who's certainly worth a uh, mention is Kowasi Reeves, the freshman mm-hmm. who had 14. That was a career high in the win at South Carolina. Flips it back in his third start of his career and scores another 14. Hits some huge threes, hits some free throws. That could end up being contagious. I mean, you look at this – Florida was 10 of 24 from the three-point line. I'm sure they'll take that every night of the week, every game, every game they could possibly have. So uh, uh, a much better all-around performance offensively and defensively against one of the uh, – against the team. It's a, this is a, a – in terms of metrics uh, relative to uh, Ken Palm or the net or the stuff that uh, counts when it comes to down the line in March, Mississippi State represents the second-best win for the Gators of the season behind the Ohio State win. So – they're going to have a lot more chances with just the way that this conference is stacked. But, man, they're coming rapid fire starting Saturday. Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, uh, 48 hours between games uh, over five-day period. So good stretch. Important stretch. Hard stretch. Let's turn our attention now to Gator football. And uh, this week probably wouldn't mean that much to, to just a random fan who's not following things. But if you're following the program closely and you've heard Billy Napier talk, you know that this week is the beginning of phase one. Scott, I know that, that Coach Napier had a 
press conference on Friday to sort of announce the start of this program. Um, what does that mean? Tangibly, what, what, what is this phase that football is beginning right now here in, the, uh, in, in mid-January? Well, Adam, on his, on his calendar that he's built for his organization, you know, there's eight different phases. And you're right, phase one is just started. And what that means, it's, it's building that foundation which everything else is built upon. And, uh, you know, when you take over a new team, and it's not even necessarily because this is his first year at Florida. This is a calendar that he uses each year with each team because, you know, you've heard coaches say it all the time. You know, each year is a, a new season and a new team, and, and that's real. Uh, but Billy Napier's broken it down to where, okay, we've got eight phases of that, what what that looks like. And, and phase one is laying the foundation. And uh, you do that with in his situation right now. I mean, it's really almost like an introduction as well, because now him and his staff, they're, most of them are finally in place and they're starting to meet these guys and get to know them on a more personal level. They're also starting to kind of learn more about what the players can do on the field and in measurements and there's going to be, I think he said, 10 or 12 lifts and 10 or 12 runs. I can't remember which one it was, but basically they're going to do a lot of team runs and team lifts. They're going to get numbers. They're going to see if who improves. And they're just getting a baseline of the, the, the guys and what they can do. And then I think for the players, Adam, it's a chance for them just to see how their coaches uh, operate on a daily basis, to see what their expectations are. Billy Napier said it's it's important for the coach, for him and uh, you know his staff to be fair and to be consistent, uh, but they're also looking to see who's building accountability. And then from the player's perspective, it's a it's a chance for them to learn those expectations and just really get to know each other. I mean, it basically, it's like starting a new job, Adam. Yeah. Or, or a new year in school when you were in college. You know, you got new teachers. You're going to have new classmates. Uh, it's still something you're familiar with, but it's a, it's just a different environment that you're operating in. And that's, that's kind of the way Billy Napier approaches this. So phase one is really, it's, it's setting the groundwork, putting that foundation down and then from there starting to build slowly. So, but you know, you've heard the saying, if you can build a strong foundation, that's, that's step number one to be successful in team building or, you know, ever how, you want to phrase it, but essentially this is a team building process and this is step one of that, uh, of that process. Are they doing trust falls, right? That's what I, I envision the, you know, the trust falls and the, uh, you know, the, the bonding exercises. I'm, I'm sure there's some version of that. Yeah. You know, I don't know exactly what all they'll have yet, <laughs> but you're right. They, they, they'll have some of that stuff. I can remember uh, when I first got here, uh, I think it was Will Muschamp's first season. I remember going over into the woods with them during spring and to go paintballing. You know, they took the team out to paintballing near Gainesville in the woods. It was, again, it was a chance to just for the coaches and the players to be around each other to learn. So, and I'm sure that every coach, I think every good coach does something along those lines. But one thing I have you know, just from my short time hearing Napier talk and just seeing him operate, this guy, you know, we've talked about on this show, Adam, you know, he he arrived here with a very detailed plan. He's a detail-oriented guy. And um, you can just tell, you know, when he talks, I mean, the other day during his press conference, 
when he starts talking about phase one, you know, he, he started talking about building that foundation and then he's just, he was talking, he, you know, it's something which you build upon. And so I, the couple of days later, when the, when this actually started, he tweeted out the actual definition of a foundation. And it was really exactly almost what he said in his press conference. So you can tell his attention to detail is very high. He's a very good communicator. He likes to pinpoint exactly what it is that he's doing and what he's talking about. And, uh, you know, as a communicator, that that's so huge because you see how so many coaches, and I just think people in general can fail at that sometimes. You know, it's like they assume the other person knows what they mean, and they don't always. And that's where miscommunication starts, mistrust. But with Billy Napier – He's laying it out there. I don't think his players, his coaches, his staff, I don't think anybody has any is going to have questions about what exactly they're trying to accomplish during this phase one. And obviously, uh, you know, in the background of all of this, recruiting is still very much in full swing. They're trying to put together a class that obviously had a ton of ground to make up, given where things were when this staff came in. Um, but, you know, it's, we can't talk about names, Scott, but. People that follow this are seeing a lot of official visits, a lot of guys who are maybe committed to other schools are coming to check out what the Gators are trying to build. And uh, we'll see how it pans out in a few weeks, but certainly a lot of activity on the recruiting front. Yeah, I mean, this this past weekend, they had their first big official visitors weekend since Napier and uh, company got here. Uh, they have two more of those the next two weeks before National Signing Day, and you're right. There's some names that they've been able to get in uh, to come and take a visit that you wasn't uh, weren't sure about a few weeks ago. And I think more than anything, just from reading the kind of the national narrative and from following it up close, I, I think this is what I think you wanted. If you're a Gators fan, you wanted to see a buzz about your program and get people to look at it, maybe when I say people, I mean some of these these players who maybe were not considering Florida, to get some of those guys to take a second or third look at their decision and maybe have Florida, hey, let's go down to Gainesville, let's take a look and see what Napier and those folks are doing down there. So I think we've seen some of that. You know, I don't think you're going to see the the fruits of, of Billy Napier and his staff's labor on recruiting the recruiting cycle until next year in full but if they can get this class adam it from where they were you know near in the top 25 or so you know that's a, that's a huge leap and quite frankly uh, i think that's a big win for for them obviously mm-hmm. kamari wilson who's on stat or who's already on campus the safety from uh, south florida he was a big get for him in the early signing period and and, you know, they're looking maybe to get another guy or two like that. And if they do, then you're you're going to see that number jump up there to where it really is not going to be anywhere near as bad as, as a lot of people envision. But there's still work to do. And also, you know, the transfer portal, we've talked about it. That thing continues to spin like crazy. And it's going to it's gonna land on a, a couple of people in Gainesville. I just don't know how that's going to look, you know, by – by the time spring ball rolls around, but but there's still some players coming. And obviously when all the dust settles in a few weeks, we will talk about that and uh, and review where that leaves the Gators from a personnel standpoint. 
one program that does not have an issue with personnel is gymnastics. And they made some history this past weekend, Scott. They were on national television, on broadcast television, on ABC against Alabama. Um, people that follow gymnastics know those meets are almost always on Friday nights. This was Sunday afternoon on ABC. It was a big deal for them to be there. Uh, and a really crazy finish as well. I think a lot of people, myself included, saw what was happening and assumed uh, that, it, that you know Alabama couldn't be caught. Uh, and then Florida got to floor and put some incredible performances up to change the outcome. Yeah, uh, Nia Reed and uh, Trinity Thomas there at the end, both of those ladies getting a 10. I mean, if, you're, if we're sitting here talking about football, that'd be like, you know, first and 10 at their own 20, uh, about – 45 seconds left and they drive down and win, you know, at the buzzer. That's the kind of, you know, performance that was really with what they were able to pull out, Adam. It would be almost like if the Cowboys had not <laughs> done what the Cowboys did. Uh, you want to go there, man. Oh, man. So, that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I had to. Yeah, that was a that was a tough weekend. Thankfully, the, uh, the, the, the UF Gymnastics had a better performance than the Cowboys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Especially like you mentioned, Adam, it's on national TV against one of your biggest rivals. And, um, you know, really, I was talking to somebody, it's almost like an hour and a half commercial for University of Florida. I mean, what a great stage to have that kind of performance and showcase. And, you know, I did a story last week before the event talking to Bart Carner and Kathy Johnson-Clark. I mean, if any, if you have any familiarity with u.s gymnastics those two names are going to ring a bell because they're both big time olympians they've been involved in the sport as announcers for the last three decades and you could tell by talking to them this was a big moment i mean for the sport uh espn abc uh the sec network all under you know they've all devoted a lot of resources to college gymnastics in the last seven eight years since the sec network launched and you know the for the first time last spring, the NCAA finals were televised live on national TV, but it never happened during the regular season. So that's just another milestone moment. And and they were saying that there's no no other sports that that move the needle right now as much with potential growth as college gymnastics and college softball. They're just really booming in terms of interest and viewership. And they're only going to continue to grow with moments like what we saw Sunday because a whole new audience is introduced to it. I mean, Florida fans have been used to having, a, and really Southeastern Conference, college gymnastics has has been really big for many years. Uh, and, the, you know, they all have their local fan bases. And we see that the Odome, like you said, every Friday night, usually that place, several thousand people for those five home meets a year, it's usually packed or nearly packed. And they had a sold out on Sunday. And last year they were up at Alabama when Trinity Thomas, you know, hurt her ankles and they never really recovered. And now for her to end that meet with that 10 to lift the Gators to victory over the Crimson Tide, uh, had to be a sweet uh, moment for her and the Gators. And uh, now we'll see how they can uh, do the rest of the season. But it's a made for TV sport, Adam. I yes. mean, you're, you're watching it. So, I know it had to be big if you're watching it. Yeah, it was good to see. It was really good to see and excited for for not just the team, but for the sport. Again, it's a chance to grow and you see exposed more people to something that we know is great because we've seen it for a long time, but there's parts of the country that don't know about SEC gymnastics and the product that they have to offer. So certainly positive for everybody involved. Um, I want to turn our attention now to women's basketball. 
And we talked last week, Scott, about them surprising a few people, and they've continued to surprise people. And in this year that so many had written off because of the the coaching drama preseason and having an interim coach for the entire year, um, they've just they've taken seemingly every bit of adversity and they've just powered through it and they continue winning games. Uh, in three consecutive cases in comeback fashion in the fourth quarter. So it, it's a cool story. It's, it's probably not a story that a lot of people know about. Um, but if you really tuned in to Gator Athletics, it's definitely a surprise. Yeah, Adam, I mean, you know, Gator fans, uh, they, they've watched this program struggle for several years now. And, um, you, you know, you touched on it. This was a different kind of offseason with the coaching change from Cam Newbauer to Kelly Ray Finley. Uh, some headlines that you don't like to see. And and now it's, you know, basically you just didn't know what to expect uh, with this team going into this season. And I'll give them credit. They've, you know, Kelly Ray has stabilized it some. And, and they, you know, they started the SEC by losing a couple of close games. And you wondered, okay, this might be going down the same road that we're used to. But now they put together three in a row, which I think – I don't think they've won three in a row in league play since 2016. So it's wow. been a while. And and their third their 13 wins are already more than they had last season. So they're definitely trending in the right direction, Adam. And guess what? They're doing this without Lavender Briggs, who recently uh, announced that she was going to miss the rest of the season with an injury. Uh, and then a few days later, it was announced after – uh, they get one of the games that uh, Kelly Ray Finley says she's decided to transfer and now has committed to Maryland. And so you're going into this season thinking Lavender Briggs is, you know, led them in scoring last year with more than 19 points a game before, you know, going down with the season ending injury. You figure she's back. She's going to be healthy. That's good for the team. She was never really herself early in the season. You could tell something just wasn't right, whether it was the injury or just not really fitting in as much on this team. And, well, she's no longer here, and guess what? They're 3-0 without her. So uh, that says something to me about what they have and and what they're doing. Can it last? You know, I think we're all going to be watching with interest because this is a program that hasn't had a lot of celebratory moments, really, in many years. Uh, they, You know, it would be great to see them surprise a lot of people and get some people interested in it because – you know, you look at what Florida does across the board with all of its sports, and and yet the women's basketball program is the one that has never won an SEC championship. And, you know, with South Carolina and some of these other programs, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think this is a team where you look where it is right now in early January. Uh, they have a chance to at least get back to the NCAA tournament. And really in the, in the year, in the summer they're coming off of, I think that'd be a huge accomplishment. I think that would be a, a huge uh, plus for Kelly Ray Finley. I mean, she has that title of in-room coach as we record this. And yeah, obviously she's helping herself a lot right now. So I'm sure Scott Strickland is paying as close of attention as anybody. And, and now we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see if they can keep this momentum up. I want to wrap up now with our PAT. Uh, and it's inspired by what's been a sad stretch here with a lot of famous people that are beloved that have passed away uh, unexpectedly, Bob Saget passed away. I think that was last or maybe it was two weeks ago at this point. On New Year's Eve, Betty White died just a few weeks before her 100th birthday. And, and it got me thinking about celebrities in particular, entertainers specifically, 
uh, whose passing had a significant impact on you for one reason or another. So I'm curious who that would be for you and the reason why it hit you so hard, despite being someone you, you know, never met in your life. Well, I think it's an easy answer is John Lennon. He was 40 years old and basically was assassinated. And when you think about people that whose lives are taken in that regard, in that kind of way, it's because of political disagreements, maybe, or some kind of, some kind of thing like that. I mean, John, all John Lennon ever did was, you know, uh, make music and try to make people happy. And uh, I just know, uh, you know, if you grew up in the, when I grew up and basically were, were part of that uh, music revolution, even as a, even as a kid, I mean, I was, I was a elementary school kid listening to, to that stuff. But I mean, that's, that's the soundtrack of your life. Uh, and then, you know, and John Lennon was was still making music at the time. I think his uh, I don't know if Julian was start, his son was starting to make music yet either. But and you all here's the deal that if, if you were me, you were of my ilk, my the baby boomer generation. There, everyone you always held out hope that the Beatles would one day get back together. Mm-hmm. And you know, when John Lennon was gone, that that was never going to happen. And I'm just I just remember you know like everyone tells a story. I was in my dormitory in college watching a black and white on black and white little television, watching the dolphins play the New England Patriots and Howard Cosell tells you that John Lennon has been uh, shot and killed in New York city. And so uh, that was something, I, I, you know, it's funny you bring this up. Uh, another one that affected me was when Sean Taylor died. And as mm-hmm. a Washington football fan, I mean, that, that guy, man, I mean, he, he was probably headed to, headed to the hall of fame and how many, just think about this, how many, professional athletes at their at their peak can you name not who died because there's probably some who Mm -hmm. were murdered yeah he was murdered someone came into his house to try to rob his house and shot and killed him but i i just remember it was it was so sad because sean taylor by most accounts was troubled kid early on in his career and uh had some had some issues but had gotten it all straightened out because of a girl and a baby and he had he had changed his life. I remember talking to Rondé Barber, who was in an All Star game with him, or excuse me, a Pro Bowl with him in Hawaii, and said that it's a completely different kid than the than who he knew him to be. And so that was that was kind of sad uh, from that standpoint. Um, I want to digress a second before Scott jumps in here. In in 1978, I, I I've told you the story how my brother won a. a Academy Award for Collegiate Student yeah, for yeah. Um, Best Dramatic Film. The best documentary winter in 1978 was Bob Saget. Really? And in that same thing. And I met Bob Saget before anyone who knew Bob Saget. He was a 22-year-old kid from Temple University. By all accounts, he, he must have been a really, really wonderful person. When when the names start coming at you and they say they come in threes, it just yeah. seems like of late, uh, it's they've, they've come a little more than than in three. So um, maybe there won't be so many down the line. Let's hope. You know, I think if I had to say one person, I'm re- and I, I'm not even that much older than him if he was still alive today. But I remember when Kurt Cobain uh, died, the mm-hmm. lead singer for Nirvana. You know, I think he was 27 at the time. I was probably 23 or 24, and I mean that was at the height of grunge and i was a big grunge music fan pearl jam soundgarden nirvana all those bands that was i could totally see that i could totally see you being the grunge guy 
yeah, that was my music at that time. And I still listen to Pearl Jam today once in a while. So, uh, you know, and I still like Nirvana. I mean, music is music. It's timeless if it's good or if you think it's good. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, that, uh, that was just one that, whoa, you know, it, by all accounts, you know, he has the world in his hand. And yet I just remember, man, I mean, I loved that band at that time and he knew it was over. But also, I mean, what a sad way to go, you know. And, mm -hmm. and there was all kind. Of, I think he had a young daughter at the time. And yeah, you don't, you know, as you get older, you're like, you even put it in better perspective. I was pretty young at that time, so I think that's one that has just always stuck out to me. Uh, but again, I'm not one of those people who would go across country to light a candle outside his house. I mean, yeah, that's just that's just not. I don't I don't worship celebrity culture. I I uh, I like it. I, I pay attention to it, but you know, it it, it just it, uh, he stands out. And then, you know, the sports ones. I still remember Payne Stewart. You know, passing mm -hmm. away in the plane crash and watching the news coverage that day of the plane as it goes across the country. And you know, so there, we all have those, right? I mean, yeah. we all have those moments. Like you know, you talk about Bob Saget. I was never ever a fan of Full House. So Oh real oh man, I, I grew up on Full House. Yeah, and you know, my wife loved Full House and they she watched all the reboot a couple of years ago and I'm Oh like, the reboot was horrific. Well, you know, I couldn't watch it the first time. I sure can't watch it the second time. It was so it was I very didn't get Bob Saget. I know he's popular. I just but Betty White, hey man, I remember the Golden Girls and I was into that <laughs> shit. So yeah, Betty White, man, that was tough. I, I took you for a grunge guy. I did not take you for a Golden Girls fan. So you're, you're full Girls, of surprises. You know, that was a, a good show, man. I don't, I'm sure I watched it with a grandmother or something. Humor is humor. And uh, you you can laugh at that. Matter of fact, I've seen it on TV, on Hulu the last couple of weeks. I've been flipping through and I've seen Golden Girls. I've stopped to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we've learned from Scott today, music is music. And funny is funny, That's regardless right, of regardless of context. Though sometimes context is important for comedy as opposed to music. They'll still be saying that a hundred years from now as they record Gator Tales, Adam. <laughs> I we we hope we hope that they do. <laughs> we hope that they do. Um, but uh, don't don't wait a hundred years to check out all the content Chris and Scott have on FloridaGators.com, and you can follow their activity on Twitter as well at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. And we will reconvene next week. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks, Adam. Assistants in basketball are often seen yet rarely heard, but they often have the most compelling stories of anyone on the bench. In the case of first-year coach Eric Pastrana, it's a journey that has far outpaced even his own goals and expectations. Yeah, so I was born and raised in, in Miami. I, I grew up there and, and uh, my parents who were divorced at a pretty early age. Um, my, uh, my mom was a nurse and my dad just kind of worked at like a car dealership, but they, uh, from an early, early stage, I was always around Miami senior high school, which is, um, one of the notorious, like best high school basketball programs, probably in the history of the state of Florida. So just from early on from my upbringing, being around Miami high, Frank Martin, uh, was a coach, was a head coach there for, for a stretch. So just from an early on upbringing, I was always exposed to a high level of basketball. So I just always had that passion for it. But uh, one brother, um, one older brother is three years older than me and was always chasing him around and following him around and play with big brother and, and, and play against his 
his friends instead of mine. And so, so that experience was good. And then I moved uh, to West Palm Beach, about an hour north of Miami, just before, right, at, right into middle school. And so kind of exposed me to a whole new, for anybody that's grown up in Miami, Miami is very different from any other place, even an hour north mm-hmm. up to West Palm Beach, uh, drastically different. Um, just culturally, um, for example, my obviously um, I'm Cuban, that's my background. And my grandmother was obviously born and raised in Cuba and she moved here and she's been here for 40 or 50 years and she's never had to learn the, the language. She mm. still speaks Spanish. So just... The, uh, the change in going from a place like Miami where you can go into some restaurants and and not even speak English or nothing on the menu be English um, to then West Palm Beach, which was obviously um, not nearly like that. So it was, it was an interesting exposure for me, but it was I thought it was actually really beneficial to my life just to kind of get out of that bubble of Miami and and see something so different, even an hour north, which which kind of hinted to the rest of my life where I've moved so many times and been able to, I've really enjoyed being able to expose myself to so many different types of people and different areas and different cultures. And it's it's been really cool. So you mentioned growing up around Miami senior high and basketball being such a big part of the the culture there. What was it that, that got you hooked on it? Like when did you lock in and say, this is something I'm really passionate about and why? Yeah, it's funny. So I, you, you grow up in a, in obviously the state of Florida is a football state, even more so Miami-Dade County, Broward County, Palm Beach County. Those are all that South Florida area is so football driven. I would say the the one thing was just the exposure to to really good players and and the way they played. I, I always considered myself when I played basketball as more just like a physical tough football player playing basketball I didn't mm. I was never a high skill guy and and that's how Frank Martin coached his teams at Miami High it's how Shaky Rodriguez uh, who was before him um, who, who kind of laid the foundation uh, at one point Shaky Rodriguez had two assistant coaches by the name of Anthony Grant and Frank Martin mm. uh, it's a pretty good high school coaching staff yeah and just being exposed to such a high level of coaching high level players even at a young age, I came to appreciate it, especially the way they played, just the toughness. It wasn't, it wasn't this pretty style of basketball. It was super competitive. It was in your face. And even as a young kid, I just, I, I just kind of gravitated towards that. And obviously, when you're really young and you see uh, a high school team having so much success, winning state championship after state championship, but it was more just the culture and the, um, if you go back, if you talk to anybody from Miami the, in the 80s and 90s, Miami high basketball was was a lot of times bigger than like a professional sport in that town. It, it was just different. And and I, I loved it. I mean, I, I wasn't a huge Dolphins fan. I wasn't a huge Heat fan. I liked them. But I always wanted to be around Miami high basketball. And that's mm. just which which kind of laid the foundation. I didn't realize it at the time. But by the time I was playing high school basketball and going to college, I I, I wanted to be like Frank Martin and my my high school coach Jay McCormick and Shaky Rodriguez. I didn't I didn't look to college basketball like oh I want to be like Coach K or any of these guys. Um, just because I had seen so much of myself in what they were, and so it was a really cool experience. You know, it, it's interesting because I feel like so many coaches um, they they were high level players, right? They either played in college, they played in the NBA, and then they come back around to coaching. Your route was different than that. So I'm curious, as a guy who 
wasn't, you know, actively playing at the highest levels, what was it that gave you both the idea to go into high-level coaching and the confidence to, to do it as well? There were a few things. Uh, Frank Martin, first and foremost, he, he was a college basketball player. So, so just the motivation of, of one of my mentors being at the highest levels as I was getting out, you know, going into college and getting out of college, just knowing that, that he had done it. And, and even more so, I, I was excited about coaching even when I was playing high school basketball. I was, I was an above average high school basketball player. I probably could have gone to a no-name tiny school to continue playing basketball. But, but even to that point, I, I, I enjoyed coaching while I was playing in high school and coaching my teammates and trying to figure out different things and push guys uh, to a certain degree more than I enjoyed playing the game, which is kind of weird. But I just I love that part of trying to help people grow even at a young age. And I didn't really know why I did it. So when I got the opportunity to go to Kansas State with Frank Martin, it was it was an unbelievable opportunity to to be given exposure to some high level coaching and high level basketball players. So but even at that time, I would say this, even at that time when I was at Kansas State as a graduate assistant, I didn't have a goal to coach in college. I, mm. At the purest form, I really wanted to coach in high school. I wanted to impact young people the way I had been impacted growing up. Uh, college basketball wasn't really, even when I was going to Kansas State as a graduate assistant, my thought was I'm going to get a master's degree paid for. This is awesome. I'm going to get to learn from Frank Martin and a bunch of other great coaches and be around really good players. And then I'll get to run my own program in Florida at, at a high school and, and hopefully have the same impact. And it wasn't until a couple years in after spending that time with, with Frank and, and just understanding how I was growing and gaining confidence, I said, you know what, I, I could do this at a higher level. Um, and, and that's what kind of motivated me. Having that, that time with Frank Martin, with that staff at Kansas State, how did that mold you? I, I imagine a lot of the coach you are today is as a result of those experiences. So what did you take away from that that you really implemented into your, your own coaching moving forward? So the, the number one thing from Frank, and, and I know people look at Frank and, and they think screamer, <laughs> you know, sideline, all that stuff. But the one thing you can say about a Frank Martin team, and I think this is more important than, than any coaching aspect that anyone can have, is he, he has an identity and he is mm. completely bought into it and convicted in it. And that is going to be a part of who his teams are and I think that's critical. And I think a lot of times we, we get lost in trying to do a, a lot of different things, but uh, I will say this about Frank Martin. He was, he was very adamant. We are going to play defense. We are going to rebound. And if we do those things, it's going to give us a chance in most games. Um, obviously you want to have great talent and all those things, but you can really mitigate uh, maybe a talent gap by doing all the other things at a high level and, and, and I was I was a full blown believer the first year I was there. I'll tell you this as an example: we had Michael Beasley and Bill Walker. Mm-hmm. We had a, we had NBA talent, and we got to the second round of the NCAA tournament, and we had success that year. But the the year I became a believer was the next year. We obviously Mike Beasley and Bill Walker went to the draft. We graduated some other guys, and we didn't have a very high level talented team coming off that. And we didn't go to the NCAA tournament. We went to the NIT. We won about twenty games. But to me, we probably had one of the lower tier talent teams in the Big 12 that year. And I purely thought it was off of defense, rebounding and toughness. 
that we were able to fight ourselves to that point. And we were a little bit on the young side, which, which, you know, was an issue. But after that year, that, that same team now a year forward after I left goes to the elite eight. And, and I fully believe that year that we went to the NIT, it was one of Frank Martin's best coaching jobs because I thought he had nailed down what the culture at Kansas state university was going to be. And once you've nailed that down and you can add talent to it and those guys grow, they can blossom uh, within their roles and, and the identity. So that was the number one thing that I took away from, from Frank and Kansas state was you've got to have an identity and you've got to sell out to it and you've got to be convicted about it. You mentioned the, the culture shock, even going an hour North of Miami. I'm curious what the transition was like in Manhattan, Kansas, relative to, to what you grew up in, whether it's the people, the weather, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of factors there. Yeah. Well, uh, this isn't to, to be rude to my family and friends and all the great people that live in Miami. But the one thing I know, the biggest notice, uh, biggest change was when I got to Manhattan, Kansas, the people are, were some of the nicest people I've ever interacted <laughs> with. Um, just, and not just that people in Miami are mean, but people in Miami, they're, they're moving really fast. Nobody acknowledges each other really. Cause it's such, there's such a different pace to that city. And then I moved to Manhattan, Kansas and, and you're walking through the grocery store and for no reason, a nice lady is just saying hello to you. How's your day? And I was so confused and it, it was just something <laughs> I'd never been. I was just like, I would what walk does she away want from if, me? What's happening here? Yeah, exactly. I, w- I would walk away a few times and say, dude, gosh, I feel terrible. Dude, did I meet her at some point? I don't remember. Her. <laughs> and then af- and then after a few months, I, I just, you, you come to recognize that's how people are and specifically in Manhattan, but in the Midwest. And obviously the weather part was, was something to, uh, to, to adjust to. I had no idea what a ice scraper was when I got to Manhattan, Kansas. So the first time our, my windshield froze, I, um, I had to get pens and a, an assortment of things to just try to jab the ice <laughs> off of my windshield. Probably not the smartest move. And I had to call, call one of our other graduate assistants and say, hey, dude, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> He's like, man, you got to go to a gas station. They have these things called ice scrapers. And um, so that was an adjustment as well. I enjoy, you know, the change of seasons, but... I'm not a I'm not a a, a huge um, scrape ice at seven o'clock in the morning off my windshield in ten degrees kind of person. Yeah. No, that that takes a special kind of person to uh, to embrace that for sure. Right, um, right. Talked a lot about Frank Martin, so I have to ask because from the outside, Frank Martin is a terrifying presence. Um, what what do people not know about Frank Martin that you do because of your relationship with him? Is he actually a softy, and everyone else from the outside just just sees the the on the court stuff? He's he's as big a, a, a softy. He's he's maybe one of the funniest guys. Really, on the planet. Um, yeah. When he's when he's uh, when he's in a room or he's at his house with his family, he's first of all Anya, his wife, runs the show, and he'll he'll acknowledge that um, he's. He's he's only the leader on the basketball court, um, but but he's 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 a great person. He has so much depth to him. He has so many. He's he's so much more than a coach. There there were so many times that after maybe he had a really hard two and a half hour practice at Kansas State, and he got after the guys and he yelled at them, and he he'd also huddle them up in that circle after, and we'd talk for about fifteen or twenty minutes about why you not getting to a certain spot on the floor and giving it your full effort 
will lead to you maybe not being the father or husband that you could potentially be 10 or 15 years from now. Hmm. Why doing all those things at such a high level is so important because on the court, you're doing it for your teammates as well as yourself. Well, in life, and you know this as, as much as I do, you're doing it for more than just yourself. You know, when you, you get to that point of being a husband, being a father, being a great friend, being a brother or sister, uh, it, it's bigger than just basketball. And, and I thought he always did an incredible job of tying that in. I think a lot of people see the the yelling or the screaming and they don't see the way he connects it to real life. And that was always so impactful uh, for me. And, and I've been lucky to work for a lot of guys that, that have done that. And um, Mike Boynton has been another one as well that, that did a great job with that. And, and I'm just thankful to have Frank impact me like that, but he's, he's a, he's a teddy bear, man. He's off the court. He's a jokester. He's a prankster. He loves playing jokes on people. It's, it's incredible how funny he is. I got to catch up with him a little bit after our game. Obviously he wasn't, in the most talking mood after, <laughs> after we got a win. Yeah. But he was, he was, he was, he was great to, to connect with and, and just spend some time with me, asked me how my family was doing. And that's just the, the kind of person he is. Was that the first time you coached against him or had it happened before? It had happened one other time. I was at, I spent one year at FIU and we had, we had gone up there to play. We were competitive for a half, but we didn't, we didn't have a chance in that game. They paid a, they paid us a bunch of money to go there and lose. <laughs> So um, we didn't we didn't um, quite put up the fight. Uh, obviously, we had a better team coming in this past Saturday. So it was the second time. Definitely, definitely kind of awkward, but definitely, um, you know, I wouldn't be sitting on that bench if it wasn't for people like him and, and the many that have helped me. And if I can help anybody like that 15, 20 years from now and look back on it and, and they beat me in a game, I could say, man, that's pretty cool. That, it sucks that we lost, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> You you mentioned you know, a few minutes ago, you know, moving around a lot. That's a big part of, of this job, this career. And you, you've had a lot of different stops in a lot of different places. You've been at JUCO. You've been at, you coached AAU for a little bit. Then you came back into college. What has sort of guided you on this way? Like, is there is there a compass that you use? How do you decide what direction to go next as you move around? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I don't necessarily think it's a, like a manual that I followed. Obviously, if you look at my resume and my career, where I've gone, um, I really think the compass is just, um, it's in myself. What, what I believe was the best for myself, the best situation for myself to continue to grow. I'm always looking to grow. And, and I w- I've been really thankful. It's been tough to move as much. I, I love being in, in one community and, and really just consuming myself with those people. But it's been so beneficial to expose myself to so many different areas. And, and sometimes you're just at a, you know, it in any walk of life, you're at a different point in life where you feel like you need a different challenge to continue growing. I never wanted to remain stagnant. I thought um, I loved coaching in division one basketball, but I thought it was a, it was a great opportunity for me to go to Daytona state college and, and run the risk of maybe not getting back into division one basketball but being a head coach and being able to apply what I had learned up until that point from Brad Underwood and Steve Forbes and Frank Martin, I felt like I had learned a great deal from them and I wanted to be able to apply my own beliefs and thoughts to, to what a program could look like. And, and I, I expected to be at Daytona for a while and, and Dusty May obviously gave me an opportunity to go to Florida Atlantic right after. And that was another one I, I didn't want to pass up because even though I loved being the head coach for that year, I also respected Dusty May 
at such a high level for years. I thought he was a great basketball mind. I was excited to learn a different style because he was he was a, a big time offensive guy, um, and and I had been surrounding myself with defensive guys. So I thought it was an opportunity for me to grow, even at Florida Atlantic. So I've always just tried to look at an opportunity. Is, is it worth it for me to grow? Um, am I going to grow in this situation? Am I going to become a better as a result? And and you're not always right. Sometimes you, you make a move and and maybe it doesn't work out the way you you thought it would in life. And And I think those are just as beneficial times in your lives where you can learn from maybe the mistakes and, and continue to grow. So I'm, I'm really grateful for all the moves I've made. I'd love to stay at a place for a little bit longer, but I, I don't regret any move because I think I'm a much better version of myself than I was 10 years ago. And a big part of that is all the people I've been able to interact with and that have, have impacted my life. I'm sure this is a big part of it. Uh, the relationship building and, and connecting the dots. Dusty May, for those that don't know, was an assistant under Mike White when he first came to UF. Uh, how did you first connect with Coach White and begin the process of being where you are today? Yeah, so when I was at Stephen F. Austin with Brad Underwood, we, we were having great success at Stephen F. Austin. We were going to NCAA tournaments and, and winning a couple games. And on the border, so Stephen F. Austin is located in East Texas. Louisiana Tech is bordering, um, I mean, Shreveport is literally right on the border, and then you got Ruston. And so Louisiana Tech kind of bordered um, SFA. So, and they were having tremendous success pretty much at the same time. And I knew Kyle Church, who used to be the director of operations here. He, at that time, he was the director of operations at La Tech for Coach White. So Kyle Church was an, a junior college assistant at a rival. Um, he was at Chipola College. I was at Northwest Florida State. So we had already had a, a pre-existing relationship. So fast forward, we're both now in Division One. I'm an assistant at SFA. He's at La Tech. So we kind of got to I got to know their staff through Kyle. And obviously, we were both having a lot of success. So myself and Coach White didn't have a relationship at that time, but I always respected him from a distance. I always respected Dustin from a distance. And 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 that really was was it. And I always maintained a good relationship with those guys. And when I when I got the opportunity to go to Daytona, um, I was really enjoying it. And and then obviously, you fast forward. I, t- I mentioned the Dusty May situation at FAU that I that I went to and. And then after Dusty, I went to Oklahoma State and spent two years with one of my best friends, Mike Boynton, who was obviously an assistant with me at Stephen F. Austin. And then Coach White and I just kind of made contact um, this this past year. But we had always been friendly. Obviously, as coaches, we always see each other on the road recruiting. Uh, so there have been times where maybe I sat at I sat at a game with him and we just talked basketball or talked life for 20 or 30 minutes. But it was never um, anything that was, you know, pre-planned or orchestrated. It's really just relationship building, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just building relationships. Any way I could ever help him or Dusty or Kyle, I would want to help them even if I'm at another uh, institution. So um, when the opportunity came this summer, it was a great opportunity, again, for me to continue to grow, uh, to work for somebody that I respected um, and somebody different from, from the different coaches that I'd worked for in the past. So I, I saw an unbelievable growth opportunity. And obviously the University of Florida is such, I mean, it's the University of Florida. I grew up in the state. I'm, I'm well aware of how special this place is. And to be back in the state that is my home uh, with all the moves I've made it, to, to a certain degree was a no-brainer just because I, there were so many, so many positives for me. 
I feel like fans have a very limited understanding of what assistant coaches do. They obviously see you guys on the bench all the time on TV, but beyond that, probably not a lot of awareness about what goes on day to day. Talk about your role, what it is that you do. If, if you weren't talking to me right now, uh, what would you be doing on, on a normal day? Yeah, so if I wasn't talking to you, I'd probably be talking to a, a recruit right now. So so if I miss on a guy, I'm going to call you back and blame you for it. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So um, on any given day, it depends when you're in season, out of season. Obviously, when we are when we are in season, it's really just how many different ways can can I help this program in a positive manner? And obviously, recruiting is is a primary way because without recruiting, we we won't have success. We need we need good players at the end of the day. We need the right kind of players, the right kind of people. But on top of that, first thing in the morning, for example, a lot of times I would grab a group of three or four guys and we would just shoot. Um, we'd, we'd organize shooting groups and our staff does a really good job of, of just making sure guys are getting extra work in on top of their um, on top of practice. Because a lot of times what people don't understand is practice. You've got, let's say, an hour and a half practice or a two hour practice. Most of these guys are only taking 12, 14 shots in those practices. Mm -hmm. So it's really it's really critical that those guys make a couple hundred shots at some point throughout the season. Cause if not, you're, you're in practice, you're in scout mode, you're lifting and then you're playing a game. And so it's really important that we do that part where we spend time for them to continue to individually develop. We'll, um, we'll meet as a staff. We'll talk about what we need to do to get better. Um, a lot of times oh, we'll, we'll have guys come by the office and watch film. For example, we won at South Carolina on Saturday and we had a bunch of guys. Sunday was an off day these guys needed and then um yesterday we had guys kind of coming through the office and and we're sitting down showing six seven eight clips how Kowasi had a great game how can Kowasi get better and we you know sit down show them six seven clips of some defensive things maybe some offensive spacing things just to to help him grow so it's really a how many things can you get your hands on to help Florida Gator basketball be better on Wednesday than we were on Saturday Mm -hmm. And it's just a, a continual process. And obviously the recruiting piece is really important. And anytime you could sneak away to, um, to catch a game, that, that's critical too, whether it be a high school game, a junior college game, um, just to continue to build relationships, not just in our team, but, but out, out there in, um, in the recruiting world, because that, that part does not stop and it can't stop. Um, no matter how busy we are right now in season, which we are, and we're trying to get better, but, at the end of the day, you have to you have to kind of have your baseline of this is how we operate um, in all facets, and and that's a big part of it. You mentioned earlier your your Cuban heritage. I know you're a member of the Latino Coaches Association. How important is it for you to to be part of that effort to increase representation and to to kind of own that piece of, of your story and apply that to you know to college basketball as a whole. To be totally honest with you, it may be the most important part for me personally, just because I'm, I don't think I'd be sitting in this chair, sitting in this office at such a special university if it wasn't for me looking at people like Frank Martin, the impact he made on my life. Just to you asked me earlier about not having a, a big time college uh, background, being a big time player, and what motivated you to a certain degree, he did. Um, and not just, not just him not having a big time athletic background, but him being someone that looks like me, that speaks like me, that has, you know, parents like me, that that comes from the same neighborhood, the same area. So 
so for me to be in a place that I am, thanks to people like him and people like Mike Bellotto at Arkansas State and others, um, I, th I find it imperative that if there's anybody that can look to me and say, man, he did it. Like, I know he worked really hard, but maybe, maybe I've got a chance. Mm -hmm. uh, I, that, that part, as I've gotten older, has become more and more important to me because not that anybody needs to look up to me, but if, but if I can provide any kind of encouragement for somebody to chase something that maybe there, there's more reasons to say there's no way I could do that than to believe in it, then it's important to me. But there's, you know, the Mike Bellatos of the world, the Tony Pujol at, at North Alabama's of the world, Sergio Rocco's, like all those guys that I looked up to were, were vital in me, not just having these dreams, but there's going to be a lot of times when I was coaching junior college basketball and cleaning up the gym and doing the laundry and cleaning the practice jerseys and practice planning and me just sitting there like, what the heck am I doing with my life? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but realize, but realizing even in those times that those guys had all been through those moments and, and it's going to make me better and it has made me better. So, so the Latino part is very, very important. Um, and not just that, just um, anybody that feels like they don't have a great reason to make something better of themselves than they think um because I, I think i think it's really important to to chase what you love to do and this is what i love to do and i'm, I'm beyond blessed to be able to do it well eric i know as you noted you have recruits to go call so i will not hold you <laughs> any longer but uh thank you so much for sharing your story and, and gator nation's glad to have you awesome i'm glad to be here go gators and that's going to do it for this week's show if you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.